Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to Claire McGlasson about her debut novel, The Rapture. Claire McGlasson is a journalist who works for ITV News and enjoys the variety of life on the road with a TV camera. She currently lives in Cambridgeshire, and The Rapture is her debut novel, and we're going to be talking about it today. Claire, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. Um, how would you describe The Rapture? Oh, it's um, I'd probably use the title as a starting point, um, which was difficult to uh, difficult to come up with in the end. Um, lots of titles we, we we tried, but it's a book that I think speaks of the rapture of falling in love but also the rapture of religious fervour and how those two can be quite similar in some ways and how the lines between them can be blurred. It's about a, a religious society, a, a cult, you, you, many people would call them, of women um, that started 100 years ago um, after the First World War. Um, they moved together to Bedford to live what they thought would be eternal life, um, following a leader called Octavia, who they believed to be the daughter of God. So on the one hand, they were you know, very radical, a feminist reading of the Bible. And in other ways, they were very conservative and, um, well, pretty snobby yeah, when it came down to it. So it's it's set, it's set there. It was a real group of women. Um, I was allowed access to their archives and I built a novel around some of the characters and some of the events. And, yeah, as you just described, it's, it's based on real events and often real people. I want to talk about a couple of the characters first of all, but let's sort of approach them from the perspective of the characters in your novel. Yeah. And so our, our narrator um, is told from the perspective of uh, Dillis Baltrop. Baltrop, would that be how you would say it? Yes, I think so, yeah. Um, who is she? Well, she was, in real life, was 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 a member of this society. And I don't want to plot spoil too much about how she came to be there. But she was someone who, on my first visit to the real site, which is now a museum, there was a photograph on the wall of a garden party with lots of women, all slightly blurred because they were in mid-conversation. They were taking tea in the garden. They liked to have garden parties on what they came to believe was the site of the original Garden of Eden in Bedford. And they're all having a chat with each other with hats and gloves and everything. 
And in the middle of them all is this much younger woman who's looking directly into the lens of the camera with a quite an enigmatic smile, not really joining in with the rest of them. And I was fascinated by who that was. And I asked the curator of the museum and she said, well, that's Dillis. And she told me a little bit of her real story. Um, and that's why I decided to base the character on her. So at the beginning of the novel, she's she's a bit of an outsider. She's younger than the rest. She doesn't feel as though she fits in. You know, some of them are having this these religious experiences and feel they found God. And she's she's rather outside of that. And then as the novel uh, progresses, she meets an outsider and that sort of starts to unpick what she believes, really, and how much she's prepared to believe. And so this this second character is is Grace. She's a young woman that is interested in the society and, and, and joins it towards the beginning of the novel. Tell us something more about who she is. Well, she is the only completely invented character in the novel. And it was important to me to have an outsider come in and to see things from that other perspective. She joins as as, as a servant, which um, many women did. I mean, most of them were quite wealthy. They they had the luxury of being able to move to Bedford and buy properties, which they, they bought next door to each other, these Victorian villas, and knocked them through to create this community behind in this communal garden. She joins as a servant, so she is living in the house with Dillis. I mean, I think it might be difficult to, to understand why women joined this society, but on many levels it gave them freedom or or appeared to because they were living you know they did living outside the expectations of being wives although some of them had been married and some of them were widowed so she's a young woman who's searching for something more and she thinks it's quite exciting to join this society where you know it appears to be quite a radical place women are in charge and women are calling the shots they're doing lots of things for themselves there's a printing press and this great publicity machine I mean these women would have been fantastic on Twitter if they'd lived now um so she joins as I say as a servant and is close to sort of the top ranks in the society including Octavia who was the leader yeah I wanted to bring us on to to Octavia as she calls herself who is the the woman as the leader of this group. And before we do, because again, it's it's based on a real character, I want to talk about the the real life Panacea Society. So tell us about when you first came across them. Where did you where did you discover this story? Well, I grew up near where they lived, but um, had no idea that they were there. So if anyone's ever been to Bedford, there's a beautiful, um, you know, sort of riverfront, the embankment. Um, I used to walk along there. There was a great um, area of lovely Victorian houses. Um, And that was sort of my nearest town growing up where we'd go to on a Saturday. Um, I then started working for ITV News. And we were asked to come up with a a series for the news programme called Hidden Histories, which when you've worked in the same patch for a number of years, it's quite difficult to come up with something you've never heard of before. But I just started Googling, had a look at Bedford, came across this very small reference to the Panacea Society and then carried on down that rabbit warren of of Google, really, of of looking into them and realised that not only had this cult existed, but that where they lived uh, was still standing because they believed they would have eternal life, that they wouldn't die. And then when they started to die, each house was sealed up for the day that they would return with Jesus. So they sort of rewrote their um, their rule book, really, of what was going to happen. So a lot of these houses were they were still standing. They were still full of possessions um, until fairly recently. I went along to film a three-minute piece for for the news and was just absolutely hooked by, you know, so many things fascinated me, the, the faith, 
um, the feminism, the coercive control because they were they were spying on each other and encouraged to report each other's failings, the the mental health of the the protagonists of the story and the reason the reasons they joined and the reasons they stayed. Um, so I uh, I did that thing that I realise people do now when you've written a novel and I interviewed a few novelists and said you know, you should really write a book on this place. It's fascinating. You know, it's all it's all real. It all happened. And James Runcie, who wrote The Grantchester Mysteries, actually um, said, well, why don't you write it? And um, it planted a seed. And a few months later, I decided to, to make a start. What sort of person joined this organisation? Generally speaking, female, uh, middle class, uh, usually someone who had the means to buy property, there were former suffragettes who had been very active in, in getting vo- getting the vote for some women. There were some that were interested in theosophy and spiritualism. A lot of them quite intellectual women who were who were who were searching really. So they they joined together and and believed that I think were motivated mainly by the horror of World War One and the fact they'd lost so many of the men in their lives. Um, this movement made sense of that. You know, it it said that all the terrible things that were happening were for a reason because the end was coming that Jesus was going to be coming back to them and they came to believe I think that men had made rather a mess of things particularly with the war and that it was women who would be the key to salvation because as far as they could see I think nothing was really changing you know the church was talking about changing the world and talking about better times to come but they were looking at the afterlife and these women were looking at you know how can we be suffering now in this world? How can God be allowing us to suffer and have such death and, and such horror that they'd seen? But they were making sense of, of that suffering. And there was a handful of men in the society. The, yeah, there were a handful of men. And most of them, I think I would describe as not necessarily fitting into wider society. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily having the same power and agency that, that that other men around them may have had. So they were, again, I think some of them searching for kind of a safe haven where they would be protected and um, perhaps in some cases thought that they could have a degree of power. But I think they underestimated, uh, they underestimated Octavia on that front. Um, as you mentioned, obviously the, the, the First World War is, is key to a lot of this because there was a lot of this sort of thing around spiritualism was was really big at that time you know lots of lots of big names became interested in spiritualism because they'd lost people during the war and as you mentioned like theosophy so there was a lot of you know this is a period of time when this is less unusual than it might seem at a distance yeah i think in some ways it was a perfect storm really of when we look at the period what they just lived through but also the period of change you know, women looking at how they could have more more power and more say in their own lives. There were women who had suddenly found themselves with with money, and what what were they going to do with it? You know, what what could they do to forge their own lives? So I think there was certainly a sense of looking for meaning in what had happened. And what happened to them? So how long did the society last for? Well, the last member only died in 2012, um, so they continued to exist um, even after Octavia died um, in the 1930s. Her followers continued to grow, so um, when the last member died, at that point the 
or I think actually before her death, they were, they were moved to make it into a charitable trust. So the organisation now exists as a charity and it runs a museum on the site where these women lived. But yes, there were around 80 resident members at any given time, about 2,000 believers worldwide. And they provided healing. They sent out healing, which we might talk about, like, I guess, in a little while. Octavia would um, would breathe on linen. They would cut them into little one-inch squares and send them out all over the world. And conservative estimates are that around 130,000 people wrote to her for this healing from all over the place. So it, this wasn't just a small, you know, group of eccentric women. They were they were quite famous or well probably infamous in their times you know great big adverts on buses and billboards across london they were very good at advertising themselves and they were very well known so let's go back to octavia tell us something about who she was she was a the widow of a vicar perfectly ordinary and respectable woman really and i think what fascinated me about her is that when we think about cults I certainly usually think about, you know, very charismatic men who are using their position of power, usually over younger women, uh, sort of for their own ends. Um, this was a woman who was told by her followers that she was the daughter of God, and she carried that as an in- incredibly heavy burden. You know, undoubtedly, she liked to be in charge and she liked to tell people how to live their lives. But the toll that that took on her own health was quite incredible because she believed, she came to believe that she was um, the answer to ending to, to ending suffering on, on earth, that she was the key to to the to the second coming of Jesus to return and and you know make everything better. And that's yeah, I can't imagine what it was like to carry that um, on your shoulders. So I was really interested in in her character in that way. She wasn't just um, you know a calculating, manipulative. Um, person although as I say undoubtedly she she did those things as well but she was sort of a reluctant messiah really to start with hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
you're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Claire McGlasson, and we're talking about her debut novel, The Rapture. And Claire, you've been telling us about the Panacea Society and its charismatic leader, Octavia. But the beliefs that they base this society on come from an older mystic woman called Joanna Southcott. Tell us something about her. Well, she, she again, was, was infamous. Um, she uh, had many believers, and I think st- still still does have uh, people today that follow her her prophecies. She um, most famously believed she was carrying another messiah, and she was well into her 60s, I think, at that point. And various doctors, including the, the royal doctor, came to, um, came to examine her, and, and many people came to believe that she was pregnant, which was not the case. But by that time, she had... Uh, many followers, she told them that she had sealed up um, some prophecies in a box that would bring about this this end, that would bring about you know a new era to end suffering in the world. This could only be opened at a time of great uh, tribulation, um, a, a, a time of great national emergency. And she said that when the time came, the 24 bishops of the Church of England at that time would be the ones to open it. And that would be the answer. That would be when th- everything started happening to... Um, to make things better again. So the Panacea Society were followers of hers. They had these, uh, I mentioned the billboards across London, you know, it said crime, banditry and distress, um, you know, persuade the bishops to open this box. And they committed themselves to persuading these men to open this box. They even had a house ready to put them all up for bed and breakfast in Bedford. They had dress rehearsals with all the cutlery, the, the you know, the, the hot water bottles, the bars of soap, everything was ready for them. Um, but of course, persuading 24 bishops to uh, listen to this group of um, women who'd been ridiculed and dismissed was, was never going to be easy. So that's quite a large part of what they're trying to achieve in the book, resting yeah. a lot of hopes. Yeah, the bishops are not playing ball, are they? They're, no, they're, they're, not, they're not having it. Um, so you mentioned the, the healing, um, the cutting up of small pieces of linen and sending them around the world. And in the book, we see the characters at one point burying them around various parts of Bedford because they're all terrified about the, the general strike that's, that's, that's about to happen. Tell us something else about this this healing idea. Well, Octavia... Um... The, the story went and they, they documented everything. I mean, these women I was lucky enough to, to find in their archive, you know, shopping lists, menus, diaries, letters, confessions. They also published much of their own work um, to send out because they really believed they would be proved right and we would be pouring over every detail of their life, which actually I have spent many months of my life doing. But um, what, one of the pamphlets that they produced described how Octavia had been about to take a tablet for her own health and felt her hand almost being knocked for the tablet to, to be dropped. And she realised that God was telling her that she didn't need the tablet, just the water. Um, and from there, that became her breathing, ha- having this healing breath. But they were very practical women. You know, how do you get your leader's breath sent out to someone in Jamaica who's who's writing for help? So they came up with this you know, very practical suggestion. She would breathe on the linen, they would cut it up. If someone wanted her healing, all they had to do was write with what, what what ailed them and then report back as to whether it had worked. There was no charge. They weren't trying to cash in on, on anybody's um, hardships. And a lot of the letters I found were what they described as, you know, problems with their nerves, people suffering terribly 
uh, with mental ill health after after losing people in the First World War. It could be as, as dramatic as that. It could be someone with, with chillblains. That was one of the ones I used in the book. And depending on what your ailment was, you would either dab this linen onto the spot or you would put it in your bath water or more commonly you would pop it into a glass of water and, and drink it and that would have the, the sort of healing effect. Um, you, you just mentioned research. I want to talk about how you basically went about the process of fictionalizing this mm. this real life society. So let's talk about the research you did first of all. Well, I approached the um, charitable trust, the, the Panacea Society, some ch- charitable trust, and I asked them for permission. I knew the archive was there because I'd visited before. There's a very comprehensive uh, non-fiction book that was written some years ago. In fact, it was started when the last members were still alive. And I know that they'd gone through the archive. Um, so I just would go sit down. They would bring a box from the archive at one point, they had a letter opener, which is actually um, features in the novel. And one of the boxes I opened, the first box was um, sealed confessions, which had been sent in from all over the place because members were, were told to write down their, their darkest secrets. And some of them were still sealed up and said, you know, if unopened, please burn. And I was encouraged to, you know, go ahead and open them because no one had looked at them before. Many of them had been opened, but there are hundreds that have never been looked at. So... I had a wonderful time sitting reading documents that had never been seen by anybody else before. Um, the difficulty was when to stop and when to start writing, really, because you can imagine you could spend years of your life just enjoying that process. So I had to, I had to be quite focused, which I think being a journalist helped with that. I knew I wanted to write about Dillis, so I focused predominantly on her. And when I felt I had enough to inspire a novel, I then took a step back and, and knuckled down, really. <laughs> Now, Bedford's a rather unlikely place to find the Garden of Eden. Um, what remains now of their of their garden, of the, I was going to say compound, but that's not really a... Yeah, they called it the campus, actually, so it's not far off. Yes, it's, um, the houses are still standing, they're Victorian, many of them terrace and some of these bigger Victorian villas. The garden was knocked through, so all the fences and walls taken down. So that garden is still there with their chapel that they built in the garden. And Octavia's house, um, still there, still furnished. The last members to die were still looking after that house and cleaning it for her, uh, waiting for her return. And so, yes, her bedroom's there. Dillis's bedroom is there. Some of the other characters in there with, you know, little pair of uh, glasses by the bed and um, perfume bottles and hair clips and brushes. It's, it's all there and you can walk around. And then there's also a museum on the site, which which talks a lot about the origins of of this cult and similar ones, the South Cotian uh, cults that grew up and sort of similar cults in America. And I want to spend some more time talking about, you know, how you how you went about the process of, of developing this into fiction i mean particularly and obviously we, we're not going to give too much away about what happened but like uh, you know one of the themes of the novel is particularly around dillis's sort of sublimated sexuality yeah so let's talk about how you developed her character well the, the research process for me was sort of diving in and i did take lots of notes but i tried not to get bogged down too much i tried to immerse myself in their world and then it was a bit like diving into a lake, really, sort of having a swim around. And then once I came back up for air, what, what had stuck with me, you know, what had inspired me? I'm used to dealing purely with facts as a journalist. You know, I, everything has to be absolutely checked and verified. 
And the process of writing fiction was sort of liberating, but also terrifying because I was in new ground, really. So I decided from the beginning that I wanted to be true to my sense of the society. I didn't want to use it as a setting for, you know, a murder mystery, for example, and just use them as the setting. I wanted the novel to grow from what I'd read. So I certainly took liberties with time. Um, I condensed some key events like the general strike that you mentioned and some key events in terms of things that really shook the beliefs of the society. I condensed them into the space of a year um, to take some sort of novelist license with that. And also when it came to characters, I gave some other people's stories to a smaller, to a smaller band of characters because it had to work as a novel. It had to work as a story and there is already a non-fiction book that you know gives chapter and verse on on every detail but it was the spaces between the facts that i found most interesting you know because on paper and in the papers at the time they were ridiculed they were dismissed as sort of loony women and when you say you know the garden of eden was in bedford and the leader's the daughter of god well it would be easy to dismiss that really it's almost the punchline of a joke and was at the time so i was really interested in the spaces between the facts and what might motivate people what might bring them there, what might keep them there. So I, I certainly took, you know, took liberties with condensing things. But the most important thing to me was to give a true picture of, of my sense of the society. And I wanted to talk about what other writers might have been an influence on on your writing. Um, as an aside, I mean, I, I suppose it is linked to this question, but I noticed that some of the chapter headings were named after other stories and one in particular I could think of that I, that seems to me to be um very redolent of the sort of hothouse atmosphere of the uh yes the yellow wallpaper yes that is the one I'm thinking of <laughs> um yes that was for my own in fact it was suggested I take that out at one point um by someone in the editing process but to me it was a it was a nod really to the fact that you know mad women in fiction are one of the, um, in fact, I saw it on Twitter the other day, you know, women in certainly 19th century fiction, you know, that that will fulfill certain roles, you know, they might be the angelic wife, or they might be the, the mad woman, or what have you. And the mental health of the characters is a huge part of this book. So that really was a nod to the to the kind of heritage, really, of how how these things have been tackled before. But yes, as you say that, it chimes with many of the themes in the book, particularly the feminist side of it and, you know, women's place and our understanding of women's mental health. So for me, I, I suppose I had a bit of fun putting that in, but I guess, yes, it does perhaps subliminally signpost as well to what I was hoping to, one of the things I was hoping to achieve. And indeed, perhaps another one of the characters, if we can call him a character, Sir Jack. Sir Jack was a real member of the society. He's in the first chapter. He joined by flying through the window of Octavia's bedroom and he was Sir Jack the Jackdaw and they um they tamed him and kept him and he was a great favourite of Octavia, but he pictures of him and accounts immediately struck me as rather sinister. So he the, he's not the lovable family pet in, in the rapture, certainly. Um he goes from place to place with with his beady eyes watching people, which you know, is probably symbolic of the fact that the women within the society were encouraged to report each other's uh, failings and faults, you know, very small things. Perhaps someone's eating too loudly or they, they, they're walking too loudly with their heels. They they were encouraged to be faultless, colourless and zero. So they had to be, you know, almost invisible to make themselves 
you know, pure and ready for Jesus to return. But when you've got a, a group of up to 80 women living in close quarters, it's it's those differences that become, I think, louder and more pronounced. So they were taking notes on each other. And so Jack was hopping about and flying from window to window, uh, peeking in. So I did. Yeah, I did have fun with him. He, he's he's on the cover. Um, Actually, the cover of the book is Dillis's, the real Dillis's bedroom. Um, So for the cover shoot, we took a um, we took a, a stuffed jackdaw from a taxidermist and uh, and put him in place. So we did have fun with that. And to finish off, can I get you to, to read us a piece of the book? Of course, yeah. So this is from very close to the beginning of the novel, and it really sets the scene. Um, we've talked a bit about Bedford, haven't we? So the scene and sort of Dillis's place in the society. So um, this is for a chapter called Pond Skater. They're watching. I must concentrate on walking one foot in front of the other down the length of Albany Road. Head up, back straight, like I'm wearing a corset, though Octavia doesn't believe we should wear them. We should have the faith and discipline to contain ourselves. Using whale bones would be cheating. It's not as if I'm doing anything I shouldn't. Walks are permitted in Octavia's list of wholesome exercises for body and soul. But my thoughts might betray me. The devil plants doubts in my head and guilty looks on my face, and that is what they will be looking out for. Fifty-eight believers live around the garden now, all chasing the same prize, the glittering treasure of a sin or scandal they can unearth and present to Octavia. Today is the Sabbath, so all work is suspended, except the most important job of all, which is to keep an eye on each other's souls and report back where we find them lacking. Behind those net curtains, there will be pocketbooks open, pencils poised. Sunday, 1.38pm, Dillis seen leaving 12 Albany Road, looking furtive. Octavia calls it overcoming. She tells us Jesus will not return unless we are colourless, faultless, zero. So we must evaluate one another. It is for our own good. She says secrets are like splinters. They need to be wheedled out before they start to fester. But it is not that simple. Some are far too deep. They burrow into flesh. The skin heals over. The stab of pain is gone. And in time you wonder whether they were ever there at all. Those are the secrets that I keep. Secrets from before the others came. Secrets in the box at the back of my wardrobe. I walk past their windows, past Mary Massey on this side of the street and Mary B. Dell on the other, past Florence, Hilda and Agnes at number 19, three sisters who plainly cannot stand the sight of one another and spend their days picking over old squabbles like vultures over bones. Then on past Ethel and Mildred Keeley, whom I find almost impossible to tell apart, and their lodger, whose name I can't remember. I lose track of who they are or how they came to be here. At 25 years old, I am the youngest by at least two decades, a peculiarity among the band of increasingly indistinguishable middle-aged ladies, the colour receding from their hair and the definition from their waists. Even the houses look the same, terraced like their occupants joined together. One may have a little stained glass in the front door, another fretwork like lace along the eaves or a checkerboard of black and white tiles leading callers up the path. But these are just details. Stand back and they become a single row. They rely on each other to stay standing. If one brick came loose, everything could come crashing down. But they stand firm, stand guard, and so must we.
At the bottom of Albany Road, the grey sky opens and meets its own reflection on the river Great Ouse, a ribbon of water as wide as the road that runs beside it. A crew of schoolboys rose by, gliding in a mist of frozen breath, their blades moving together like the legs of a giant insect. A pond skater, that's what they look like. Edgar says that in America they call them Jesus bugs because they walk on water, unaware that they're performing a miracle. The river is so close I could touch it, dip my toe in first, then wade in after. There are no walls or sloping banks to stop me. There is nothing to stop me except the cold. When spring comes, I shall sit at the water's edge and watch the twigs and blossoms that it carries to the distant sea. Then in summer, the spectacle of day trippers out on punts, a splash, a shot of laughter, another young man boasting, cocksure and trying to impress. I will see him panicking as the punt pole gets stuck in the mud. Sometimes we cling to the very thing that is pulling us under. So I've been talking to Claire McGlasson. We've been talking about her debut novel, The Rapture, which is out now from Faber. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.